This is a picture of a student. One of them attends our church. Any guesses? <laughs> hey? The guy in the middle? Oh, not quite. It's the guy on the, your right. His name's Jared. I picked on him today because he's at Kids Church, so uh, he won't know. Uh, <laughs> Why am I showing a picture of a student? To remind us, even though we're adults now, when it comes to following Jesus, we are to take a lifelong posture as a student, as apprentices, as disciples of Jesus. We are always learning from our master teacher on how we can live as citizens on heaven here in our broken and fallen world. And so if you're new here today, welcome. You've landed in our second week of our sermon series uh, on Sermon on the Mount. And last week we began our ascent in Jesus' sermon and we learned that the Beatitudes is both a mirror and a vision. A mirror that shows us our sin to push us to Jesus for salvation, but it's also a vision of the kingdom of God to pull us to Jesus for transformation. A vision of the blessed, heavenly, good life that Jesus brought to us on earth. A vision that is distinctly different to anything, any other vision in this world. And so Jesus continues to fill out more details of this vision of the blessed life. And in the next section of his Sermon on the Mount, he will show us again how distinctly different his disciples are to be in this world. And he will be doing this by stating two statements of identity. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Jesus says the blessed life described in the Beatitudes just before makes his disciples to be salt and light. And he doesn't say you should be salt or you should be light. These are not instructions. But he says you are salt. You are light. These are statements of identity. And that means that if you are in the kingdom of God, you are salt and light by default. You are intrinsically salt in life as part of your kingdom life, as part of your citizenship of heaven. And what we see is that identity comes before activity. He is going to show and say how the disciples are to live, but he starts with, he is what is true of you now today. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Now, when Jesus is making a statement about the identity and the nature of his disciples, he's also making a statement about the nature of the world. So what does it mean when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth? In the ancient world, salt was used as preservation. Back then, they didn't have freezers and fridge like we have today. And so salt was a way to preserve meat. And so if Jesus' disciples are salt of the earth, he's also saying the earth is decaying, the earth is spoiling and rotting, and the earth is becoming more and more corrupt. Christians, as described by the Beatitudes, will naturally be salt by having the effect of delaying the moral and spiritual decay and corruption of the world. They'll do this simply by their presence in their street, in their community, 
as they live, work, and connect in the city. Likewise, when Jesus describes his disciples as you are the light of the world, he's also saying that the world is dark and is in need of light. And in the Bible and in the ancient world, light is connected to truth, revelation, and love. That means the world is darkened from the truth and love of God and thereby darkened to God's good design for the world, darkened from what is truly right and wrong, what is truly good and bad. So Christians as citizens of the kingdom of God will naturally be light by bringing light of God into the darkness, confusion, lostness of the world. By shining through their lives God's truth revelation and love and Jesus is saying that the world needs salt and light human existence if left to itself will inevitably go into greater disorder and Jesus is saying without Christians without the church without God's kingdom people here on earth everything will fall apart in other words salt and light are missional identities Being blessed by God naturally makes you be a witness to the world as salt and light. What would your witness then look like? As salt and light, you will expose the decay and the darkness of the world. And so it means that the beauty of your kingdom life, when you come into contact to the places where you live, work and connect, the beauty of a life will reveal other things for what they truly are. So, for example, if you're a Christian, then just by your very presence, you perhaps might reveal dishonesty in your workplace for what it is. You might reveal gossip for what it is. You might reveal racism or prejudice in your neighborhood for what it is. By the way you handle pressure, by the way you take criticism, by the way you treat people who work under you, the beauty of your kingdom life will show the true colors of something. I don't know about you, but have you tried trying to find matching socks early in the morning before going to the gym? Around 5.30, you're trying to see whether you put out a blue sock or a black sock, and you can't quite see, and you have to go to another room to come to some good light in order to tell whether you've got a black and blue sock. A real good light shows the real colors. And if you're a Christian walking like Jesus, then the beauty of your life shows everyone around you the true colors, shows everyone what is good and what is bad. But friends, being salt and light doesn't mean you're a wet blanket. It doesn't mean that you're just kind of this moral police. Because salt and light, salt is not just a preservative. What else is it? What else would you use salt for? Seasoning, for seasoning, to bring out taste, like salted caramel. You even also add salt to sweet things to bring out the sweetness of things. By being salt, you also bring out the good in people just by your presence. You bring joy by bringing out God's good order, holiness, goodness into the environments where you live, work, and connect. And so Jesus makes these two statements about our identity, who we are in Christ. We are salt and we are light. Then he goes on to make two common sense observations about salt and light. Verse 13, but if you are salt, 
loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And verse 14, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You don't need to be a Bible scholar to understand what Jesus is saying in these verses. It basically amounts to this. Salt that is not salty is useless, and light that is hidden is useless. Jesus is talking about common sense here. The reason why you turn on a light is because you want to light up a room. No one lights a light and then hide it underneath a blanket. That is not the point of what light is for. And the same with salt. Salt that is not salty, well, it's not useful for anything, is it? And so Jesus is making these metaphors and making these observations to press a point to his disciples. And so what is the point that he's trying to make? The point is the church exists for the world. The church is to be in the world as salt and light. And it's not about what we do, it's ultimately about who we are. We're not called to be salt and to be light. We are salt and we are light. And Jesus didn't call us into the blessed life to keep the light of the gospel to ourselves. He has called us so that we can exist in the world to give the gospel light to others. So if we're salt and light for the world, how then do we be salt and light? Jesus goes on to give us one commandment, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So again, notice how this command flows out of identity. You are light, so let your light shine. Activity flows from identity. How do you shine the light of Christ? What is it that people see? Well, they see good deeds. How do people see the light of the gospel? Well, people can't see your Christian convictions. People can't see the certainty of your faith. What people see is your life. They see what comes out of you. They see your good deeds, your good works as the implications, as the overflow of your convictions and faith. And this is why how we live matters. And so here's the really confronting thing about our identity in Christ. When people see you, they are concluding something about God. That's the really confronting thing about identity in Christ. When people see you, they are concluding something about God. When someone saw your life in the past week, what would they conclude about God? Based on your life, based on how you live, people are making conclusions about God. The question is, are they making the right conclusions that cause them to give glory to God? But here's the really interesting and maybe confusing thing Jesus says later in his sermon. Because in the next chapter, Matthew 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So you go, what's going on? So in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, let your light shine so people would see 
your good deeds. Then Matthew 6, Jesus says, no, don't practice your righteousness in order to be seen by people. What's going on here? Well, I don't think we could say that Jesus is dumb or forgetful about what he said a few minutes ago. No, Jesus is the master teacher. And what he's doing is that he's teasing out something much deeper about righteousness. He's teasing out that when it comes to righteousness and good deeds, your motivation matters. Motive matters. So Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 is talking about two different cases. The external action and activity is the same in both cases. The first is your good deeds and the second is practicing your righteousness. You can say those two are synonymous, good deeds and righteousness. The overflow, outworkings of Christian virtue. But in one case, the Pharisees, they're doing it in order to be seen by others. In the other case, Jesus calls his disciples to do it in order to glorify God. One is about my glory, the other is about God's glory. And that is why Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is so penetrating. Jesus is not after external obedience. Jesus is after your heart. So why do you do good deeds? Is it to glorify God or is it to be seen by others? Now, most of you probably weren't saying to yourself when you're doing something good, oh, I really hope people see me do this. See, most, for most of us, the way we do things in order to be seen by others is way more subtle. So let me show you how the ways that we do things in order to be seen by people is much more subtle and perhaps a little bit more seductive than what we might think. You don't need to raise your hands, but how many of you have done something out of guilt? Have you done something for your nan or pop out of guilt? You don't really want to mow your nan's lawn, which has become this Amazon jungle, but you do it because why? Because you feel guilty, because your nan is old and frail and the rest of your family, well, they would just think that you're lazy and selfish if you don't help nan out. Now, is that about you or is that about God? Is that about bringing God glory or is that about being seen by others. It's about you, isn't it? You're mowing Nan's lawn in order to be seen by people, in order to not be disapproved or disappointed by your family. Here's another way that we practice righteousness in order to be seen by other people. How many of you have done something good because it makes you feel good about yourself? You have this ideal about who you want to be, you have this ideal vision of who you ought to be, and so you're doing something good, not because you want people's approval, not out of guilt, but about the idea of living up to the person that you want to be. You want to live up to that ideal. And when people notice that and they compliment you, well, what happens? Well, you know what happens. You feel a sense of validation rising in you. Yes, I'm a good person. Is that about God or is that about you? It's about you, isn't it? It's about being seen by others 
not glorifying God. It's about being validated of your sense of self-righteousness, and that causes pride. In both ways, Jesus says, I didn't come so that you could be good out of guilt or self-righteousness. That is not what it means to be salt and light. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So how do we do this? It's impossible, right? Because we are all doing good things out of guilt or pride or most likely a bit of both. How can we do it with a pure motive? Well, we can only obey Jesus' commands to shine righteous deeds that cause people to glorify God only by Christ fulfilling the law, which Jesus goes on to explain. So Jesus says from verse 14, let's read on. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law and the prophets refer to the Old Testament commandments and laws as well as what the prophets had prophesied about the law. Jesus says he hasn't come to abolish those laws. What the law had promised either, the kingdom life that he's offering doesn't make the Old Testament law obsolete. Those Old Testament laws still apply to the life in the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing. But Jesus says that he has come to fulfill it, which in the original Greek literally means to fill up or to complete, like filling up a cup. So Jesus is saying God's law is necessary and every part of God's law, every iota, every comma, dot, in God's written law is enduring, applicable for followers of Jesus Christ. So therefore followers of Jesus shouldn't relax, be relaxed about God's law. They shouldn't loosen its hold on your conscience and its authority over your lives. But there was still something missing in the law something missing to accomplish the purpose of the law. It still needed to be filled up by Christ. And so he comes to fill that up. And Jesus goes on to say that what Christ fills up in the law, well, it will give you a greater righteousness than the Pharisees. Verse 19, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, they were the religious elites. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were like the heroes of righteousness to the first century Israel. In terms of human standards and human opinions, these people were at the top of righteousness. And Jesus dares to say that there is a righteousness greater than the Pharisees that he offers, and that is actually the entry requirement into the kingdom of heaven. So what does Christ fill up? What was missing in the Old Testament law? Well, what was missing and what God had promised to the prophet Jeremiah is this. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. 
what that prophecy means is that God would enable his people to have a deeper obedience, a new heart righteousness. See, the Pharisees, they were content with just external observances of the law, but God demands a far more radical obedience of the law, which is rightfully obeying the law with a right heart. Hearts that love the law for the goodness and loves God for being the good lawgiver. In other words, it's doing the right thing, but also with the right heart. That's what God demands. It's doing the right thing with the right heart. And Christ fulfills the law by giving us his perfect righteousness so that when we obey God, it's not done of guilt because Christ's righteousness makes us already loved and approved by God. And it's not done of pride because it's not our righteousness, but it's Christ's righteousness. It's his righteousness that validates us before God. And Christ gives us the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to change our hearts, to love the law for its goodness and to love God for being the good lawgiver. And this righteousness is only possible by the grace of Jesus Christ. Not even the Pharisees, the religious elite, could ever attain such a pure righteousness on their own. And so that means no one can enter the kingdom of God without the grace of Jesus. As Martin Luther said, to fulfill the law, however, is to do its work with love, to live a godly life and good life. This pleasure and love for the law are put into the heart by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not given except in, with, and by faith in Jesus Christ. See, the only way that we could ever be salt and light is for the Holy Spirit to put the pleasure and love for the law into our hearts. The only way to have the Holy Spirit is by having faith in Jesus. Only by faith in Jesus can we do the right thing with the right heart. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it so that you can be salt and light to the world so that you would do good deeds not out of guilt or self-righteousness but for the love and pleasure of the law to then cause others to glorify God and people will see the light and they will glorify God when you do good deeds out of love and pleasure for God not out of guilt and self-righteousness when we do good deeds out of love and pleasure for God people can tell because our good deeds done out of love and pleasure will be utterly different than any other kind of good works. They will have this different quality about them. They'll have a different quality about them. They'll have a different smell to them. Like, let's just be honest. You know when someone does something that you ask them to do out of guilt. You can recognize that. You can almost smell the guilt. Or you can smell when someone does something out of their sense of self-righteousness. You can kind of smell that. You can kind of sense that. Maybe not all the time, but perhaps most of the time. You can sense those motivations. So when you do good deeds out of love and pleasure, by the power of the Holy Spirit, people can sense the absence of guilt. People can sense the absence 
of self-righteousness. And people start to sense the meekness and the power of the Holy Spirit that will flow out of your faith in Jesus and that will cause them to glorify God. They will connect the dots. Maybe not right in the moment, maybe not right away, but they will recognize that your good deeds is different and has a different kind of source and they will find its origin in God. This passage in the Sermon on the Mount has given me this whole new appreciation of Romans 12, where the Apostle Paul says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true and proper worship. See, when we obey and serve God with the right hearts, we are a pleasing sacrifice to God. We are a pleasing aroma to God. God can smell out wrong and false motivations. And I think so can others. And so the penetrating question for you today is, are you obeying God out of love and pleasure for God? Are you obeying God out of a genuine love and pleasure for God? Or are you doing things out of guilt? Maybe even towards me as your pastor. Or are you doing it to be validated? Or perhaps maybe you're just simply going through the motions. Jesus is saying, you're wasting your time. You're ineffective. You're like salt that's not salty. You're light that's hidden under a blanket. You're ineffective because there is no gospel power. There is no gospel joy. There is no gospel uniqueness, difference, attractiveness to what you're doing. Your offering is not fragrant and pleasing to God and to others. And we may not perfectly serve and obey God with love and pleasure all the time, but what Jesus wants to ask is, is love and pleasure for God at the foundation of your heart. We may not do it perfectly week in, week out, but is a love for God at the foundation of your heart. No one serves God with perfect joy all the time, but is it at least the foundation and posture of your heart? If it's not, then the answer is not to try harder or to smile better. The answer is you need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. You need the Holy Spirit to write the law on your heart so that you know from the depths of your heart that it is good because it is given by a good lawgiver. Friends, if that's you today, then Jesus is pushing you to the cross so that you might receive the grace of his righteousness a perfect and complete righteousness that is not of your own, a perfect and complete righteousness that melts your heart away of any guilt, of any self-righteousness, and fill your heart with love and joy when you are struck to see that Jesus was the ultimate fragrant offering, that when he obeyed God at the cross, he was doing the right thing, but he was also doing it with the right heart. He didn't die for you out of guilt or self-righteousness, but he did that out of a pure love for you. 
If Jesus pushes you to the grace of his cross and your heart is melting, then Jesus will also pull you towards living for his kingdom by the grace of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will turn your heart to be thrilled that you are salt and light. By the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, you will do good deeds out of love and pleasure because Jesus says, you are salt, you are light. These are not instructions. These are identities. This is what is true of you. So praise be to God that that is who God is making us to be by the power of his Holy Spirit, by his amazing grace. We are salt and light. I want to say we are seeing this in the life of Chapel Hill. You should be encouraged to know that our recent visitors are enjoying being with us and are considering joining our church. I had an email saying their first Sunday, they said it was refreshing, something of a refreshment that they haven't been refreshed for months they're seeing something different. They're smelling something different here in terms of what God is making us to be as salt and light. And the local community is really enjoying our presence here in Roselle. I've not only got the Roselle Neighbourhood Centre sharing about our summer movies in the garden on social media, but we've also been in touch with the local Chamber of Commerce. So the executive chairman of the local chamber of commerce is sharing our event. She already has done that and she'll do that again to all the local businesses. Um, there's so much excitement in terms of all the local parents groups and things like that. Um, I think it's because we're doing something that perhaps any other organization could do, but there's something perhaps that is a bit more different, unique, attractive, because we're not doing it out of guilt to try to win God's approval. We're not doing it because of self-righteousness, because we want to show how good we are in Roselle. We're doing it out of the love and pleasure of God so that that evening people will come and say, you know what, there's something different here. And maybe some of them might turn to God and glorify him. That is who we are. Not something that God instructs us to do, but that's all we need to be by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to lead us in prayer. I found a beautiful prayer by Augustine that really speaks to the heart of why God as light is so amazing. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, in whom we live and move and have our being, you have made us for yourself so that our hearts are restless till they rest in you. Grant us a purity of heart and strength of purpose so that no passion may hinder us from knowing your will, no weakness from doing it, but in your light may we see light clearly and in your service find perfect freedom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.